a lot of people traveling, a lot of people out, uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, it looks like there, maybe there's a thunderstorm. Um, well, for those of you that are kind of back in the classroom now, kind of getting your, your feet underneath you for the uh, new semester, it's good to see you here. And those of you where this is uh, not exactly a normal work week, hopefully you have tomorrow off. I, I don't know if everybody does, but hopefully maybe you have the day off tomorrow. That's kind of a nice break at the end of the summer. Um, so I have a couple announcements. What we're going to really try to do is, uh, as we do, I'll explain this to you. You, know, you guys are all insiders, so maybe this would be a good time to explain this. We're going to start trying to, during the greetings, uh, kind of point people to the website. We're going to try and use the website for folks to get connected and kind of engage with the announcements so we don't have to claim up so much time doing announcements. Um, so you'll see some of these things pop up there. Um, but a few uh, announcements that we have coming up I just want to highlight for you. First of all, um, if you know somebody that's a newcomer uh, who's interested in kind of connecting with folks here, uh, or if you're a newcomer yourself, um, there's another newcomer dinner or kind of a new person's dinner uh, at the Hosses this Saturday. Is that right? The 9th. Um, so it, there's a sign-up sign up sheet, sign sheet still out uh, in the foyer, so if you want to... Uh, come and join in with that. Please sign up there. Um, also, on the 22nd of September, um, we're going to do kind of the porch dinner at the Jake's. We're going to have a service here. Uh, it'll be a shorter service. We'll probably do like an hour. We're not going to have any music that evening. Um, so we'll start off here, but then if you're thinking about kind of potluck style, what you might make, what you might think about, we're going to do a meal um, over at the Jake's house, uh, which is basically kind of about three blocks from here, so it's an easy walk or an easy drive or easy bike, whatever you, however you made it here. Um, so have that on your calendar. Um, and I think Brett's going to give us an update on faith team stuff uh, as well, kind of what's going on. Yeah, there. so um, as you have heard in the last couple weeks, um, there is, uh, when we had Marsha Owen come, she talked about um, these faith teams that work with, generally, usually, are, right now, are men coming out of incarceration. Um, and so these guys are coming out of the, usually the state system or even maybe like our city jail and are needing support um, and someone to kind of walk alongside them um, and as they kind of negotiate engaging back in the community. Um, and so we have um, been asked by Marsha and have kind of been wanting to do this for a while to have a faith team that supports one of these guys coming out. Um, and so I, I know it, it, some people have asked kind of like, well, what do we, what do we actually do? And um, and some of that is, is negotiated as we go along in this journey with them and seeing what their needs are and what, what really let, letting them guide that. And so it's kind of hard to say exactly what we do. Um, but it's the commitment of, you know, we meet twice a month. And it's, so I would say two to four hours a month is um, the lowest level of commitment. And things might come up as, as we go. But, um, but I, there's a training coming up in a couple weeks. And so even if you can't commit to this, I would encourage you to come to the training because um, Marsha is amazing, and just spending more time with her is a good thing, but um, just to kind of learn and understand what's, what the, our community is trying to do for these guys, and that is on September 28th. Um, so it's in a few weeks away. It's um, you know 9 to 1 a.m., so four hours of your time on a Saturday. Um, it's at St. Luke's Episcopal, and we'll try to put it on the website. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so if, if you're interested at all, we need five people to do a faith team at the minimum. And right now, I think we have two, um, and so which is which is good. Um, but we just are really hoping to have a couple more people so we can support this guy um, that Marsha has kind of picked out that she thinks will work with our community. So um, talk to me, um, Katrina or Dan or Tim, and we can get you connected. Great. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, please connect with us. It sounds like you probably need to do it fairly soon. 
because um, there's a training coming up at the end of the month um, and we'll need to be organized by that time. So please connect with us. Send us an email or a call or a text or whatever uh, works best for you or talk to us in person. Um, so it's great to have Mark uh, and Tim and Dale with us tonight. Thank you all for being here. Uh, always great to have you guys playing with us. Um, we're going to get back into, we're starting our second week of the Free For All series, which tonight Tim's going to run us through a conversation about uh, basically what is scripture um, and what does it mean, what is this kind of weird book that we have that sits in the middle of the congregation a lot of times and how do we relate to it and how uh, does it relate to our community. So uh, hopefully you'll jump in, it looks like it's going to be a smaller, more inter- intimate gathering, so for those of you that are kind of scared to talk when it's a lar- larger gathering, hopefully you'll feel more empowered to do that tonight. We want you to feel empowered to do that any night, but especially tonight. So uh, I'm going to hand it back to Mark now, but it's great to see all of you. Welcome. i 
actually a song by a friend of mine, a guy named Eric Peters, who I used to tour with a lot, and he's a good songwriter. And this sort of seems at first sort of like an odd choice, maybe, because it, it doesn't seem like, where, where are we going with this? But I'll tell you where we're going with this, because that's my job. <laughs> so where we're going with this is <laughs> that this is a song that Eric wrote about his, um, it, it's sort of a mixture, it's sort of his grandfather, but, but also sort of like elements from his great-grandfather as well. Um, Eric was from South Louisiana, and this to me is just a very simple song about what it looks like to love someone um, when difficulties arise. Um, and I think as we head forward tonight with our dialogue and continuing free for all and, and sort of continuing the beginning of this and trying to figure out how do we read together in community, this to me is a song that actually prepares us for that. It actually prepares me as I enter into a conversation like this. Uh, it prepares me to say, okay, how do we find ways to love each other even when things are difficult or even when we might disagree? Um, this is what that song sort of says to me.
Sunday nights, but get a little back porch music, turn, you know, or, or a Sunday night when the, the day is fading, but that was fantastic. I really appreciate that. Um, hey, I want to give you an opportunity to stand up, greet each other. Uh, if you're around somebody you don't know, introduce yourself, and we will reconvene ourselves in a couple minutes to uh, jump into free-for-all. So please greet each other. So here's a rare occurrence in the life of Mass Way. We've got four lawyers in one one circle right there. What does that What does that mean, Davey? First of all, we got four. I mean, there should be like y'all should like sue Dave Teeson for all that he has. He should have absolutely nothing by the end of this hour, right? Nothing. You're in danger, big man. So, jumping in. To free for all. Uh, that was a good week last week. I, I really enjoyed. I had fun um, uh, asking the question, kind of our little confession session of talking about the lenses and the experiences that we bring to the Bible. It was interesting to hear what people shared, and um, uh, that was fun. I, I want to remind us um, of kind of what our goals are in doing free for all. It, 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 um, it, it, it's not a shameless plug of a book we wrote a long time ago, though it could be construed as such. Uh, but um, one of the things that, that we wanted to do this fall was to talk about Scripture and the life of this community. How does Scripture help form us? Uh, how, does it, uh, how does it shape our practices as a community of Emmaus Way? Um, so that's, that's kind of what our hope is. It's not just to, to foster a dialogue about the Scriptures and how they fit into the life of Emmaus Way, but also to offer some sense of understanding of who we are and, and why we do what we do. Because it's worth doing that every year. Um, I want to remind you of a metaphor that I've, I've put out there last uh, week because I think it's helpful for us as we kind of work our way through free for all. Um, is uh, I use the analogy of being a country kid, which was me, and I did have the inevitable hand-me-down crappy dirt bike uh, that I rode pretty much to everything for about three years until it just 
crumbled out from under me. Uh, but I use the analogy of, of a lot of the dirt biking I did was on country lo- roads and country lanes and, and trails too. But there was often inevitably in the country road, there's a ditch to the left and a ditch to the right. And one of the things that we had set up last week is that we were, in talking about the scriptures, we're hoping to avoid two ditches that, that the Christian community, the world falls into in a way that I think is, is, is dangerous and, and foolish in certain ways. And, and one of those ditches I, I referred to kind of the left ditch was the idea of just entirely ignoring uh, the biblical text. This amazing compendium of poetry of prophecy, of history, of epistle writing and gospels that was constructed over more than a thousand years that is filled with beautiful text and has had uh, an incredibly significant role in the life of the community. For example, um, in your handout, would somebody read um, 1 Timothy uh uh, to 14 through 17. Those, uh, this is just a reminder of, of how the text was received and how it was perceived and how the, uh, especially the, the Hebrew gospel, the Hebrew uh, Torah and text was perceived by the early church. Would somebody read that for us so we can hear that as we begin today? Oh, yeah, thanks, Kim. So those are some pretty powerful statements about the scriptures. I mean, that one of God breathed. I mean, the source of the scriptures come from, in some ways, the mouth of God, the heart of God, the, the witness, and, the, and, and, and certainly the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, are, are deemed um, uh, the source of the scriptures themselves. And then there's certain things that are outcomes there, that, that, that our lives are deeply changed, uh, that it, is, it not only teaches us, informs us, but it puts us in the heart of God's work. The, this declaration of salvation is not just a personal experience, but it puts us as, it forms us as God's people. So as we were talking about a couple of ditches that we want to stay out of, one is that ditch that just seems to take those words and say, ah, those aren't that significant. The scriptures are not that important for the life of of a community like ours or the people who are trying to follow God. And that's certainly one side of things. Um, the other side of things is is what I, I use the term biblio-idolatry, is this idea that the Bible itself is something that needs to be worshipped. Uh, rather than worshipping God, we worship the, the text, the written text, the scriptures. Those, those things are in some ways a, a replacement to one of God's persons. So that's who we are trying to do. There's a lot of range between those two ditches, but we're trying to stay out of one ditch that treats the scriptures as insignificant, and then a second ditch that, that in some ways worships the scriptures as if they were a person of God. Um, so that, do, do, most of you guys remember that? We kind of were there last week on that. So what I'd like to do is put this at you first tonight and, uh, and ask the question. Here's the question. I'll give you a second to think about it. Is in your experience, and the key word there is experience. And, and I look around the room, and there's a lot of different experiences in this room in terms of how you were raised, in terms of uh, 
in, in, in one faith or in another faith, in church, out of church. Uh, there's all kinds of different experiences here. But my question is going to be, in terms of your experience, how did you understand uh, and experience the Bible? Was the Bible um, something that was beautiful? Was it something wonderful? Was it a burden? Uh, I, this is, I think, would be helpful for us to share a little bit of the range of our experiences. I'm reading a book for a class that I'm taking at Duke Divinity School right now. This is actually a book I would really recommend, uh, though it's not an easy read. It's, uh, have you guys heard of this Jesus Land by Julia Shears? It's a, um, it's a memoir. It, it's a very disturbing book. It's 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 challenging, uh, and, and it's it's the it's the portrait of a woman who grew up in um, in rural Indiana. Um, she was um, she was an adopted brother who is African American. They they jokingly refer to each other as twins because they're only about fourteen months apart. But their experience in terms of of um, racism as well as how the scriptures were used in their context. I mean, it, this, you would, uh, Julia Shears is not a person that kind of wakes up and says, oh, thank goodness there's a Bible to read. Because it, in many ways, it was a powerful tool that was used as literally a weapon against her. And so she's writing that very vivid experience. And, and like Mary Mann said, it's not an easy book to read at all, but it's beautifully written. Uh, and um, so if you're interested in that, I, I would would recommend that. But I, I raised that book up just to remind us that there's probably a pretty wide range of experiences with, with the scriptures. So I throw that at you guys. What is in your experience when somebody says Bible, when somebody says scriptures, um, how, how do you receive that term? Is, does it provoke fond memories? Does it provoke, provoke specific memories? Does it provoke issues? Go ahead. So much so that it's actually easy to forget that, you know, that uh, training in righteousness maybe happens through a narrative and that teaching happens through a narrative. Uh, because for some of us, reading, that, reading this, it's, it's hard to, to not immediately set, leap to, therefore, take the Psalms and find the little proof text. It's, it's hard not to read this as a defense of proof text. Proof text. And, and it isn't. And read in its context, it absolutely is not. It's, but, but it's like this sort of super proof text to defend proof texting, which is certainly one of my experiences of, of scripture. Fortunately for me, I've got a good memory. I was the guy who wanted to be like Bible knowledge quiz. So I, you know, I'm so I'm, not shocked by that. <laughs> I'm not even slightly shocked by that. So I'm Ultimately, you know, ultimately, you know, using 
to be. Script is not a safe place to be. What you've got to do is have a better knowledge than the other guys so that you can track. Andrew, I'm glad you're saying that. You're, the, the, and you're saying that, you're reminding me why I'm asking that question, is that we, like we said last week, we bring certain experiences to the text, don't we? Even to the point of how that text has been used, you read it and kind of, you remember that singular use, and then you look at it again and go, oh, actually it might, it could move in a different direction, but our experiences are absolutely critical when it comes to coming to the Bible. That, that's a great one. Some others, I mean, what are some of the experiences that you bring to the text or, or perceptions that you have? Oh, sorry. Hey, Laura. Laura, you raised an issue there. I, I think I've said this many times in our dialogues. That in, in several languages, the word gift is also the same word for violence. And so, and, and I, many and I are familiar with a couple of family systems where gift giving is an act of violence. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you probably have somebody in your family like that, that they give you something and there's a pretty strong suggestion of what is lacking in your life, you know, uh, to some degree. Or, or some sense of obligation is created that will be talked about forever. Um, and so, Laura, you raise something that's significant there, is that something that could be an incredible gift, and in First Timothy it's being described as gift, can easily, based on the giver or the, the person who is the middle person, it can be transformed into a weapon or something that creates a burden. And that's actually one of the reasons why I'm asking this question, because I suspect we probably have a pretty wide range of experiences on that. And yours is, uh, you know, is one very powerful one that, that many, many have. Others, reactions that you have biblical text experience. Then eventually she 
And she never did. And I just, I, I thought, what a tragedy. Because it's, for people like her, it's like, Laura, you know it here. For people like her, she's unlikely to wind up anywhere like here because it's like she's been inoculated by having a, a dead, distorted face injected into her. But it's a power, it's a challenge that, I mean, I think this is one of the things for all of us that's critical is that our practices and things that we take that are beautiful, potentially, lovely, potentially, or otherwise, can be turned into something that is, is painful or, or negative. So... Oh, absolutely. You know, mother loves, you know, anything you, apple, anything you can think of can turn into story. So it's not unique to the Bible. It's just that yeah. powerful things can be distorted in powerful ways. Sure, sure. Other, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for me, you know, obviously coming out of, I mean, I think, you know, it hasn't been completely positive, but just to kind of talk about more of a positive experience. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe it's not positive. I don't know. I mean, I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> back that way. I mean, I grew up since I was a little kid having these stories read to me, um, and you know, you, you I can remember these little kind of pictorial books of you know um, the disciples uh, or the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and, uh, you know, the Red Sea parting and things like that. Um, in some sense, that became so ingrained, it became familiar, uh, and in a good way. That uh, and maybe this is also the crazy way that uh, that type of happenstance was actually configured in my imagination as a real possibility, um, and not debating like did this actually happen or did this? I think that's kind of the wrong question, but but the sense that actually there is a God at work in the world who does free captives, uh, where the kind of reality that we live in is not the reality that has to be here. The things, the way things are, is not the way they have to be necessarily. Um, was kind of woven into the fabric of my imagination in a way that I think even now as an adult, you know, operating in a world that very much feels like it cannot change ever, um, there's still that expectation and hope that actually maybe it can. Uh, you know, if, if the Red Sea can be parted and people can walk on dry ground, then maybe reconciliation in certain places can happen. Maybe we can learn how to work things out uh, when, when it doesn't feel like that's so, so I feel like, you know, in some sense, while on the one hand it was often cloaked in a kind of moralism of do this, you know, be like this person, which can never give you the whole story, but um, there's also this kind of expansive imagination from just living in the narratives that these are crazy. I mean, these are these are things that you would you should not tell children. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. You guys know, I hope I shared a little bit of this last week. Um, I'm a deeply affected Bible nerd. I, I mean, in many ways, I, there's, I read the Gospel of Mark, and it utterly grabs me. It's a story that is filled with that kind of sense of, of God at work in the world. And, and things that I, you know, I would, if, if I were given, like, if it were up to me, I would write a much more homogenous or or 
maybe even a racist story of God saving people like me. And then I, I read that gospel and I, I see God at work and confounding uh, uh, also like the, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. It's just I laugh when I read that. You've got all these incredibly pious people and they can't seem to understand a word that Jesus is saying. And here's this woman who comes in who's a woman, uh, by the way, and, and, and she's from a different uh, country and doesn't have this background. And somehow she deeply understands not only the point that Jesus is making, but the humor of Jesus' language. And I read 1 Peter. It's a, a letter that has given me huge pause of understanding the place of people of faith in the world. And I, I look at that and go, wow, the entitlement that we bring uh, to a world where we're described as aliens and strangers is, is a totally different paradigm shift. So I, I appreciate you saying that because I've been deeply, deeply formed um, in reading these grand stories. And, and I've seen them read in ways that are, 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 um, are deeply challenging. Let me give one more person, uh, just a chance of what is the Bible to you? I mean, what in your experience? Sure, Ben. Um, so I grew up in somewhat of a spirit-focused tradition. So often for me, the Bible would be like a source of power, almost taking on the qualities of maybe a spell book of sorts. So that reading it, I expected that I would feel, and still do, uh, that I'm supposed to feel stirred by anything. And so I, I can recall times reading through the first part of Matthew with just all the names and making sure I caught every name because I couldn't yeah. get one. Um, and that it's, it, it's supposed to have some sort of impact palpably. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that the, 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 the speaking of the word in that tradition has great power. That's, that's, and that's probably a different tradition than a lot of people have... Uh, have grown up in. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, how many people, just out of curiosity, how many people have like read the Bible all the way through, like just from start to finish? It, I mean, you know, it's not, it's, it's a difficult journey. I mean, there's a couple of freakouts along the way. I, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a point in the Old Testament when you read this and you start going, oh my God, <laughs> can I turn back? And, and then there, you know, there are elements of genealogies and laws and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it can be a deeply challenging Challenging text. I'll give an example for me um, that 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 provokes why I'm interested in this subject. When um, when I moved to Chapel Hill, I was 28 years old. I was a, a new elder in a church, and um, and in my interview process, and I think they wanted me very badly to come, and and I was coming to Chapel Hill with to work in this church, and and the plan was. Uh, Aha, I was going to start a PhD the very next year, uh, which, which just didn't work out <laughs> uh, because the job got too big. And, um, but one of the things in my interview process, they sat down, and I thought this was one of the best questions I've ever gotten in an interview. Um, somebody said, what about this church would be embarrassing to you? Is it, I mean, like if, if you had to go describe this community to just people in your networks of friends, what would be embarrassing to you? And the answer was immediate for me was that this was a church that was not egalitarian. So uh, women did not have the same roles. There weren't female elders. There were, you know, and, and I, I just said, I think it's biblically wrong. And, um, and, and it would be embarrassing to me. And I will always, anytime I'm describing this community, if gender comes up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be caught in this kind of weird thing of saying, 
yeah, we do it this, and I, you know, I don't want to look like an idiot. I mean, or, or a, a rebellious fool saying, you know, the people I work for are wrong on everything. But on the other hand, I didn't want to be associated with it. So it was a really painful issue for me. And so I got an invitation, and this was, it sounded really good in the interview uh, uh, before I'd accepted the job. Well, we teach this class on theology. And when we get to gender, why don't you uh, do like a point-counterpoint with the founding pastor of this community? Like, that sounds really good, you know? I was like, yeah, you're really open to this. This will be really fun, you know? And so um, literally, you know, when I took the job, and, you know, you're moving back to Chapel Hill. If you've, if you've been a Carolina student, there's that beautiful moment of kind of going, I live here again, you know. And, 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 then, uh, and then, like, literally three weeks into the job, they said, hey, we're going to do this debate on, on gender roles. And it really struck me, like, oh, my. I mean, I, I didn't say, oh, my God. I think I said something much stronger than that. This is going to be horrific because I'm going to be, like, going into this person's class where they are the guru founder, beloved person. They have, you know, it's like trying to debate a radio host. I mean, that's never going to go well, right? Because they've got a kill button. They can just stop, you know, Dave Teeson just gets ready to say something smart. We just push the button, shut him up, and then say something crazy about him. And you've got your audience listening, not the Teeson heads, you know, because it would go differently, right? So I started thinking, this is going to be horrible. And I am going to be like, um, and in fact, it was horrible. The, uh, the, 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 the person said, this will be a great, lively, respectful debate. And, and the introduction was, uh, tonight you're going to hear uh, a biblical position, uh, mine, <laughs> and you're going to hear a non-biblical position on gender. And so there were all this person's Bible heads out there. And I'm like, this is going to be horrible. And, and it was. And, and in preparing that, um, I knew what they expected, and I did do this, is uh, in terms of gender, they expected a, to, a, a looking at two particular passages, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 um, uh, Corinthians 11, which are two places in the New Testament that seem to limit the role of women. And it was interesting, maybe, to kind of talk about those specific texts. But I, I got there, and I looked at them, and I, and I said, look, here's the deal. We can talk about 1 Timothy 2, but that is not that significant a question. The most significant question is, what is the Bible that we're reading? Because I would suggest to you that there's a range of answers to that question, and this is not going to be a really good dialogue unless we're aware that there's a range of answers to that. So let me give you two caricatured kind of answers to that. The, The people that I was speaking to, they would have taken what would have been more of a traditional view of the Bible, is that the Bible was generally read literally. Is that, you know, if it says it, then that's what it means. And that the primary function of the Bible was to be prescriptive, to tell us how to live our lives, uh, how to be saved, what we should do. It, it's prescriptions, advice. Uh, and, and I'm not critiquing any of those, but, but what's... In that view, that would have been the primary reason that the scriptures were read. And one of the ways that you would jump into the Bible from kind of a prescriptive viewpoint is you would read it in a linear way. So if Chancey's reading something early on in Leviticus and you're kind of struggling with that, you know, like you're reading this passage that says you shouldn't be wearing fabrics that have like two different weaves in them, you know, and you look on your collar and you go, I don't know about that. Uh, But you kind of go, that's kind of early in the Bible. 
But something later in the Bible would probably be more more thoughtful to us. And so that was literally in that context was the Bible's kind of linear. The later you get, the more authoritative it becomes. So 1 Timothy 2 is written pretty late. This is like 90, um, 90 AD, 100 AD. That's got to be more authoritative than something that was written a thousand years before that. And then another portion of this, this way of reading the Bible is to see the Bible as a purveyor of a word of truth that generally has connections to culture, but that word of truth can stand outside of culture. And, and so one of the ways that you might read the Bible in that vein is look for principles that always work. They work now, they work a hundred years from now, they work a thousand years from now, they worked a thousand years ago. And that would have been one way to read that text is to say, I don't know what was happening in um, Timothy was written to the, the church at Ephesus. I don't know exactly what's happening in Ephesus, but there's a principle here that seems to imply that men do certain things and women do other things. Now we have to work that out, but there's a principle that stands outside of culture. That's one way of reading the Bible. And I imagine that a lot of you kind of grew up in context that, that read it that way. What Andrew's talking about, and this is kind of a, a way that, that I tend to read the Bible. So here I am in this meeting saying, that's not wrong. There's just another way of doing it. And, and my sense was to say that the Bible in itself is, this, is a story. It's a narration of God's work and grace over time. It is a huge, diverse, multi-genre, multi-time period telling of what God has been up to. Sometimes the telling is a little rough. And as Dan Rhodes said, there's millions of places in the Bible that you do not want your children to pick up and start reading because it will scare the crap out of them. It's not always a nice, pleasant telling, but it's a, a narration of God at work. Um, and one of the differences I had is that for me, if I were forced to read the gospel from, I mean, or read the Bible from a certain place out, I would probably start with the gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus, not necessarily a linear mindset that said that what was always in the, the, the latest point in history would be the most important thing. And then here's a, here's a significant nuance, is that in some ways I perceive the Bible as a gospel, a good news that is an incarnate word in a specific culture, language, and time. Rather than an abstract truth that's kind of out there, it's something that lives in a very specific moment and a very specific culture. And, and to me, that was very respectful to what God had done. Because one of the crazy things that, that the Bible teaches about God's work is this crazy message of Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh. That is the most ridiculous part and the most hopeful part and the most beautiful part of kind of the gospel to me is that God desired to be so intimate with us that God became human flesh. And in some ways, the scriptures seem to connect with that deeply. In fact, Jesus, the one who became human flesh, took on the title of Word of God. In some ways, saying that this Bible that you have literally lives in a certain time and moment. So I was saying to them that night, when you're reading this prohibition 
in, in 1 Timothy 2 about women. And interestingly, the language, if you're going to read the language, it doesn't say women should be meek, they should bake a lot, they should smile a lot, they should be neat, they should, you know, be somewhat responsive to me. You know, it, it basically says in a Greek kind of way, shut up. <laughs> it's really hard to translate it any other way than absolutely silent. But what I was trying to say is that this was couched in a very specific time, in a very specific moment, in a very specific context. Um, like, for example, um, let's say that we found some ancient text that no one has ever found before. And it's out there, and you find a dialogue with Jesus talking to the disciples. And this dialogue with the disciples involves nuclear physics. He's like, you guys just have, I mean, you're so stupid. You cannot understand nuclear physics. Let me try one more time. That's actually all I can do with this illustration. I can't even make <laughs> one single point that relates to nuclear physics. But, right? But we would, if you saw that and you found that text, what would you think about the Bible? Yeah, you would think it wasn't authentic at all because how many people in Jesus' day talked about nuclear physics? No one. So to some degree, the perspective that I was trying to share that night is that one of the reasons the Bible is beautiful, one of the reasons that we love it is that it's deeply couched and it's incarnate in a specific time, in a specific culture, in a specific moment. And the culture that the Bibles were written in is like our culture. It was filled with warts. It was filled with prejudices. It was filled with struggles. And, and those are reflected at times in the writing of the Bible. So I made that point. And everyone in the room stood up and said, my goodness, you're right. We hadn't considered this. Not only are we going to follow you, but we're going to change the polity of this community. Uh, we are firing all of the elders of this church. We're only going to have female elders for like 20 years to make it even. And no, I mean, that didn't happen at all. Everybody was really polite. and They listened and they thought, thank God that guy and our teaching pastor. You know, so... I understand. All the reason to say that is that there's a wide range of truly understanding what the Bible is. Let me throw out a few things that Dan and I wrote that might be helpful. There are things that I'm going to rely on. But again, I remind you that in saying these things, I'm not expecting you to, to have that reaction and say, oh, I have it wrong. But I throw these out there for things for us to talk about. Um, and and you, you can thank Dan Rhodes for both of these quotes because he's the one who knows these kind of quotes. But Luther said this. And I think it's a beautiful quote. He says that Christ is wrapped in the scriptures like the body of Jesus in swaddling clothes. Christ is wrapped in the scriptures like the body of Jesus in those famed swaddling clothes. Uh, Karl Barth, who was a theologian in the 20th century, made this point as well. The Bible is God's word as it really bears witness to Jesus Christ. So one of the perspectives that, that, that I take with scriptures is that the power and the beauty and what makes that statement that Andrew were talking about in 1 Timothy true is that it gives testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. It points to, in other words, if the Bible doesn't say, worship me, uh, 
make me into huge books to put on coffee tables and then sacrifice animals to. The Bible doesn't say that at all. But the Bible says my power lies in the fact that I testify to the work of God, the story of God's grace, and the person of Jesus Christ. That seems to be one of the most kind of powerful ways to, to understand the scriptures. Um, Another point that I wanted to make tonight is just simply the role that community plays. Because I think what we try to do on a Sunday evening where we listen to each other interpret texts together. And we, we, we have different opinions. We have different perspectives. We have different experiences. You say church to somebody in a mass way and, and their reaction is, that's been the most powerful experience in my life is the 25 years, the 30 years that I've been part of a community of faith. You say it to others and you say, it's been problematic uh, for a lot of the time. And I've, I've, I've for some reason had to jettison my faith, but I've struggled being part of this community of people. I mean, we have that full range in this community. But one of the things that when Dan and I were putting this together, we wanted to, for people to realize that community wasn't a gimmick. We weren't kind of thinking, hey, let's create a way to really kind of do something unique in the, the world that we live in by creating this dialogue. But that the scriptures are deeply, deeply connected to community. And so one of the things, and we did alliterate, so it did get cute here, but we, we made the, the point that there's really three communities that are really significant in understanding not only what the scriptures are, but how we would read them. Number one is this is the canon itself, the, the community of the books of the Bible put together. It's kind of what Andrew was talking about here, is that the scriptures are a, they are a, they're a community of difference. There are all these different kinds of books, books of poetry, uh, books that are historical, books that are law, and they're all there. And, and one of the ways that we can look at those differences is to perceive that the Bible is like a puzzle. Now, I, I don't know, when we're at the beach, we always work puzzles. And when we work puzzles, it's inevitable that my father, or Kendall, or usually me, is really effective in stealing a few of the pieces, like two or three, and hiding them somewhere, and letting everybody do like the, 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 the hard work of finishing the puzzle. And then all of a sudden, at the very end, you produce that last piece. And the thing about puzzles is, it's not done until the last piece is put in, right? It is an incomplete work until the last piece is put in. There's the perception that the Bible is flat. It's like a, a puzzle. And every piece of the puzzle is equally as valuable. Because if you're working a puzzle, it, it, it doesn't matter which piece is missing, a corner piece, an edge piece, a funky cut piece in the middle, it's still missing. But there's the perception that the Bible itself is like that. That it's like a puzzle and every piece. You take one thing out and it's equally as important. But in reality, the Bible is filled with tensions. It is filled with... It is not something that just comes together as a neat, clean, put together... I mean, there are portions of the Bible you can read part of it. Like, for example, you can read passages of the Bible that would imply that every person in the world receives the grace and mercy of God, right? And then there are passages in the Bible that would seem to imply that that's not true. And so one of the things that Dan and I wanted to say in this is that the Bible, the actual canon, what was chosen to be in the Bible, is in itself a community that speaks to each other. So you read one portion 
portion of the Bible, and it implies this. And another portion, like, there are portions of the Bible that seem incredibly violent, and there are portions of the Bible that the people we read this summer, like Dorothy Day, created a whole peace movement on. So the Bible itself is a community. So in terms of of wrestling with the scriptures and it living in our community, we might want to realize that the Bible itself creates all kinds of tensions. And one of the things that we try not to do on Sunday nights is to always resolve those tensions. That to say, you know, you're hearing this, but if you put these two scriptures together, it no longer becomes a problem. So that's one community that's really significant. And I think that's where some of the great power and beauty of the scriptures comes is in the diversity that's in the text itself. Here's another kind of community that's critical. It's one that's really easy for uh, some of our traditions to forget is that the Bible has been read by people for more than a thousand years. There's a cloud of witnesses who have interpreted the scriptures. So it's not just us waking up in the morning and saying, here's how I want to read the Bible. But the church itself, for quite some time, has read these texts. And this is a normalizing thing. It's a challenging thing for us because there are portions of things that we do, there are things that I believe in very strongly That have not been what the church has done historically. If you were to ask me what keeps you up at night sometimes, this would partly be the answer to that. Is that we, like for example, we talked about gender tonight. I mean, think about in our culture, how long have women voted? 105 years? 200 years ago, people weren't living in the world that we lived in and saying, you know what? Women should vote. We live in a culture now where if if all of a sudden, you know, Dan went crazy and said, we don't think women should vote here or out there, uh, you'd kill it, right? Because it's, it's part of the normal sense of how we process the world. But for thousands of years, the church has read the Bible in a really different way. So what that means for us is when we do something different, we have to look back and say, why are we making a change that the historical church didn't do? It's something that keeps us from kind of writing our own Bible or doing what we want to do. So those are two communities. The Bible itself is a community. There's been a community of people who have read the scriptures that we care about. One other community that I think is absolutely essential is us and people like us and our people who are trying to practice the scriptures. Communities of people who are reading it as God's word and trying to make something happen. Because I believe the Bible is an embodied text. In other words, the message it's telling us is not some abstraction to love Jesus in kind of a neat way, but to embody the love of Jesus in our lives. And so those practices, the things that we do as a community, the things that other communities do, in some way give us perspective and meaning in reading the Bible. Like, for example, Emmaus Way was chosen as a name from Luke 24 because we saw that as a radical story of hospitality. We felt like one of the most incredible things that happened in the Scripture happened when people receive God and receive God's people. Now, when we practice hospitality, right, it makes everything simple. 
right? No. Hospitality messes us up. As we receive people who are different from us, we receive perspectives that we have maybe never heard before. When we read the Bible as a community together and we're receiving each other, we are constantly challenged by people who say, I have a different experience than that. So that tonight was kind of a couple things I wanted to throw at us as we kind of push through this. But we're, where we're going next is we're going to start looking at some unique genres of scripture. We're going to look at scriptures that are deeply obscure, and we're going to ask, how are these the word of God to us? And then in a subsequent week, we're going to look at scriptures that are deeply offensive. And we're going to ask the question, how are these God's word to us? But in unraveling that, I hope that we can kind of hold on to those kind of sense of what is the Bible and how do these communities, the canon itself, the community who's read it and practicing communities like us, how does that affect us reading portions of the Bible and letting it shape our lives? Before we go into uh, confession and absolution, I want to, Mark, you can start setting up. Um, I wanted to pause at the end tonight and give you just a chance to react. I mean, comment on what you think the Bible is. What, what you know, object to something that I said tonight. Uh, amen something that I said tonight. Uh, redirect something that I said tonight. But I wanted to leave kind of this final word of what is the Bible in the, the voice of our community. So as these guys are setting up, let me, let me just see if there's a couple of quick comments of kind of like your reactions to this uh, this, this idea of what is the Bible. It's a really big storm. <laughs> we had a night in our very first uh, space in Francesca's, right, you know, the little loft above Francesca's, and they had these windows, and the storm rolled in, it was so deeply purple that I can remember looking at Wade and going, should we be telling people to seek cover <laughs> or continuing the next song? Yes. Uh, so it was, it was a funny night. But a couple of reactions or two. Any thoughts? Critiques? Sure. Uh, Everybody's, I don't think anybody's ever said that to me. <laughs> I might like kiss you. you know, somewhere in the Bible it says the holy kiss is like a legal thing to do. No, no thank you. And I, I, think, I think that's one of the reasons why I recommended Jesus Land. Just to, because the Bible itself, you can, you can read the Bible and connect it to a practice about love that's so unloving that you kind of go, oh my gosh. Um, and so to some degree, that's, I think, tasks our community. Does our life together reflect this reading of text so that we stand back and say, I see hospitality, I see love, I see generousness. And that, I think, is the most important question that we need to ask in terms of our reading. When those things get separated, the principle 
and how it's lived out, then we get to some of the things that Laura's talking about. So thank you. Sure, Brett. Um, this is just kind of my struggle. You know, I've been in divinity school. I've written papers in theology on, you know, taking an issue and saying, what's the scripture? What does scripture say? What is the historical reading of scripture? How does the tradition practice this issue? And then what is my own kind of experience in the world? And my struggle is how how to balance those um, in which, like, which if they should, which gets which carry more weight. You know, so if I'm looking at a certain issue. Um, you know, does my actual experience in meeting people that are struggling with, you know, issue A, like, does my experience carry more weight, or does kind of when do we override? And I don't know. Sometimes it feels it feels like we're picking and choosing um, which you know how we interpret it based on the situation, and and that's just a I don't know that's just like a struggle that I kind of have in this area. Brett, I'm glad you said that. I'm going to, we're going to close with that, but I'm glad you said that. It's why last night, last week, I got so sarcastic when I made the point of, like, what if I said that everybody here is supposed to, like, give their money to Dan and me? <laughs> because the, it says it in the Bible, just give it all there. We'll be good with it, right, Dan? I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah, something will happen. And at some point, like, I don't remember who said this last week. Uh, it was Louise or somebody said, we just leave. And I was like, thank God you would do that. I mean, because to some degree, um, what you're raising, Brett, is that this is why that struggle that you have about, is this my experience or someone else's experience, is why we desperately need community around the text. It's why we desperately need to hear each other's voices. Because the truth is, we're all deciding which piece in the puzzle. I'm saying the puzzle is not flat. Right? I'm saying that there are some pieces that are more important than others. But we're probably going to differ from time to time on what piece is more important. And this is where it gets really rancid at times. is when somebody invokes an authority over another person and says, my piece, what I see here, is the secret key to knowing what God is doing. Without other voices saying, hey, I'm, that's, you know what that... That doing that drove us all to more acts of loving kindness. Therefore, that, that might be a good point. Or somebody might say, in doing that, we don't seem to reflect this gospel of love and grace at all. And so, Brett, your point reminds us that the Bible is not some abstraction that we can just kind of figure out apart from our experiences. But instead, we need to bring ourselves to the reading of the text. And my hope in doing this series and going forward is, you know, when we start a textbook series, I hope we're all reading it. Nothing makes me happier when somebody writes me an email and says, have you thought about this? Or, hey, I, I see it a different way. It's an invitation for us to not let that be an abstraction, but to, to lean in. So, Brett, thank you for, for saying that. Mark, I'm going to turn this back over to you, buddy. So to sort of shape us liturgically now towards confession and absolution, I don't know if I've run across too many songs that are a better confession than this next one. I, and one of the things I like about it, and one of the things I like about the, the sort of movement of confession within the liturgical context is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't end with sort of a happy line at the end or a happy story at the end. It's sort of that, that effort to sort of live, um, live on Saturday. You know, the, the, the Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. How, how do we sort of live uh, within that space of uncertainty, uh, within that space of, of like, oh man, is this going to turn out okay or not? Um, and, and I
And I think this song does a really marvelous job of, of shaping us in that way.
don't you stand with me for our absolution, which tonight is The Pearl by Emilio Harris. And what I love about this song, I think I said this last time we did it too, but what I love about this song is that it, it, it takes seriously what we just sang. It actually takes seriously uh, that, that move, that thought of, of you know, what if, what if this isn't going to turn out okay? It actually takes that seriously, and in the face of that kind of uncertainty, uh, we actually sing together. We cry, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia.
Some of you have at least uh, been paying attention to the fact that there are things going on in Syria right now, um, and you're watching the news, thinking about whether we're going to be involved in another war, what is the right thing to do. But my guess is also that a lot of you are relieved that one thing that does not happen necessarily is that uh, president, whoever it may be, does not just kind of say, hey, you know, I watched one episode of CNN sat in my room, pretty much got my mind made up, and came out and made a decision on uh, what we're supposed to do here, because I feel like it's the right thing to do. And I think our expectation that this person will consult with people, will listen to different perspectives, will engage in different points of view, is that we think there's something important there, that people's lives hang in the balance, and that this decision that's being made is not just something that should be made flippantly, And it's also something in which the truth cannot be so easily read off of one report or off of the face of things. We talk a lot in this community about a term called the gospel. We talk a lot about this thing called good news. And in some respects, what we do by gathering every week is to say not just, hey, you know, I really could have done this on my own. It was easy to read, I figured everything out, and hey, you know, it's nice to get together because Mark and Dale and Tim, they're really good instruments, you know, I like to hear the music every once in a while. But we gather together because in some sense, understanding what it means for the good news to exist, we need to hear it from one another. We have to engage it in a, uh, from different perspectives and hear it from different contexts. That in some sense, believing it means hearing it from other people from one another. And I don't think it's just an accident that we gather around a table to do that. The table in some sense, well, in reality, as far as we know, is a practice that's much older than even the New Testament itself being brought together. So that even those people that wrote this New Testament, gathered it together and bound it, were first practicing a table practice before they even did that. And we continue that practice here by gathering, by breaking bread with one another, not just because, hey, you know, it's a hokey ceremony, it feels kind of good every once in a while, and you know what, I like to see other people, so it's kind of what I do. But in some sense, that we find there at that table where the gospel actually 
becomes reality for us. Now, that's also a scary and fragile thing. Because in some sense, it entrusts way too much to you as a community. I mean, look at us. I mean, this is a pretty intimate gathering here tonight. If I were God, I would not do that. I don't trust you people that much. (laughs) I would not say, hey, you know, this is actually the people of God in some respects. And granted, we share it with a larger church. But that interpreting scripture is something that we can do together. I just wouldn't do it that way. But here as we gather around the table, that's what we're called to do. And we're also reminded of the promise that God's spirit shows up when we do that. I'm not sure it completely makes sense. But in some sense, it's where we find what it means to be the people of God. And to know that we are graciously received, loved, and reconciled with one another. At Emmaus Way, as many of you know, and all of you I think probably know, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come, break bread with one another, share it with one another, saying this is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that because we know and expect that in that fragile practice, the grace of God is actually present. And that we are made people who know the good news of God's work in our world. Come now to the table. Amen.